Hey everybody, this is Dave Broadbeck coming to you from my podcast studio, which is actually my daughter's old bedroom. Anyway, uh, coming up, Psychology 3256, Advanced Univariate uh, Statistics. used to be called Design and Analysis, but that was a stupid name, so we changed it. Uh, I hope you like it. This is for fall of 2019, by the way. And uh, you like it or not, look, you have to know stats. Enjoy. Okay, so today we've got two sort of mini topics. It's two topics for the same low, low price. It's not that low. But we talk about Taylor transformations first. Um, let's say you look at your data with exploratory data analysis, which I encourage you always to do. And you clearly see there's a difference there. Right. And this is something I go through with my honor students every year. We look at the data before we analyze it. We say, let's just look at it. Do we see a difference here or not? Is it the difference we expect or not? And then we go, and I, I, I say, now, go do the analysis of variance and see what happens. They come back to my office and say, I got an F of 1.1. I go, what? wonder why that is. That's pretty weird, because it looks like there should be a difference there. It could be. Now, it could also be that there really isn't anything there. But it could be there's a violation of an assumption. And the assumption violation is almost always, that we can deal with, is the assumption, violation of the assumption of homogeneity of variance. It's usually that the variances are way too different from each other. One of the things I ask my students, and I'm noted as the guy in the department whenever they, the students do their practice thesis talks, I'm the guy going, guys, where are your error bars? Where are your error bars? Like it becomes almost a running joke. Um, in fact, someone posted on my Facebook uh, feed today a picture of somebody, a cartoon, an SKCD cartoon without error bars. That's how much I know for that, which is sad. That's what I'm known for. It's I love error and one, I, I did an experiment years ago, and I gave it to a student to read, and she said, ha, there's no error bars on your graphs. I got you. And I said, then you don't have their accounts. No error bars. Ah, so I, I won. Okay. So a lot of times it's because your variances are really different. So you might see something in, like you might have a, let's say we have graphs that look like this. Say, well, well, that's group two and that's group one. Well, then group two is different from group one. But what if the error, so let's say this is standard standard deviation. I know it's making it way bigger. Now you can see why you might not get a significant difference, right? Because the errors overlap. The, the standard deviation, in fact, those would be in this case, right? The standard error, which is the standard deviation by the number of, square root of the number of means of uh, subjects, I'm sorry. That might look, that, you can see how that could look different. But it isn't. Yes? So the problem that you, you're running into is you're violating the assumption of homogeneity variance, which is a real problem. The real problem, the bigger problem here is a lot of people stop at this point. Ah, shit, my experiment didn't work. And actually, your experiment looks like it worked. It looks like your units are the problem. Right? It looks like how you're doing the measuring is the issue, not 
experimental design or your hypotheses. Like that transition, pretty cool, right? So what can be done? Or as Lenin once said, what is to be done? Some of these are clearly just for me. We can transform our data through some sort of mathematical operation. You can think of this kind of like, remember we talked about transformations the other day, well, quite a few times. Think about this. It's kind of like if I was to grade you guys on a curve, which I don't do. I would have some formula, and I would put your scores in, and it would change your scores. Right? It's just a mathematical operation. You will often hear people say, don't do that, it's not fair. And the response I always have is the same. Here's, here's a transformation for you. Divide, uh, let's see, multiply times 5 ninths and subtract 32. That sounds crazy. Is anybody recognize what that actually is? Turn Fahrenheit into Celsius. That's all I did there. Multiply times 1.28. I turned Canadian dollars into American dollars. Well, that, that, that sounds like a pretty good exchange rate. Remember for a brief time it was one to one? So great. It was even a brief time, like, what was, was our dollars would like, sent more? It was the greatest time. It was, it was a wonderful time. Times are simpler now. You could buy things online and go, I know what the price is. I didn't have to do any work to take it in my head. I have to get a calculator. So it's actually completely fair. <laughs> it is so. I'm just re restating something in different units. That's all you're doing when you're doing a transformation. But the cool thing is, it can fix some of these variance issues. Okay? So you see that what we're going to do here, I'm just going to, we're going to show you a bunch of, sort of rules of thumb when to use different transformations. Okay? So I'm just re-expressing things, changing things into different units. So here's the first one, the log transformation. I'm taking the logarithm of a number. Does everybody remember logarithms from high school? No, you don't. Okay, so let's, instead of using natural log, which you normally use, it seems to be log base 10. Just to remind you of uh, 10 1 log of 100. Two, log of three, etc. Now I'm doing this at the base ten. So ten to the one, right? Ten to the one equals ten. Ten to the ten squared is hundred. Ten cubed is a thousand. Ten to the zeroth power is one. Excuse me? You, you learned that nicely for five. It's a weird thing. So all you're doing is taking the logarithm. Now this is the log base 10. You don't actually usually use the base 10 log. You usually use the natural log, which is the base of E. Remember that? Remember E showed up early on when I talked about the, the uh, uh, function of the uh, neural distribution. Basically 2.71828. It's, a, it's just a, it's a mathematical constant. And you'll see on your calculator, we've got a button that says LN. 
That's log, natural log. Okay? So that's usually what you use. Usually, usually use base 10. But what this is going to do is it's going to pull down really big numbers a lot more than it does smaller numbers. And there are a lot of things with logarithmic scales. Decibels are a lot of logarithmic scale. The Richter scale for, for, for earthquakes is a logarithmic scale. Right? So if you've been in, we had here once about a 4.5 about 10 years ago. And then you hear there's a 5.5 somewhere, you go, well, that's only one more. No, that's 10 times more than you had. Because it's, it's a logarithmic scale. Or say 100 decibels is 10 times louder than 90 decibels. Right? 140 will puncture your eardrums. 130 is really loud on your headphones. So 140 is what you hear working outside with red jet engines. That's why they were here. So we, we have logarithmic things. Nature's full of logarithmic relationships. There's nothing wrong with doing this. If you were an exponential curve, something like reaction time and fatigue. So people, as they're doing a reaction time experiment, get fatigued. Or people, let's say we're giving them a drug. We give them alcohol. Your reaction time goes up and it goes up exponentially. It eventually gets to a point where you don't react at all because you're past that. But even if you've had like six or seven drinks compared to two or three, it's not like it's just doubled. It's, it goes up exponentially. Well, if it's doing that, let's just make that a straight line. That's all a logarithm does. Now, as a problem, if you've got a scale that has negative values, you can't take a logarithm of a negative number. Well, you can. It's just undefined. So all you do in that case is just add a constant and then take the log. Okay, so it's not hard to do. That's an easy fix. So you go log of x plus k, and k is a constant. So let's say you've got numbers less, let's say your, your lowest number is minus 5. Let's add 6 to all the numbers, then take the log. That's fine. But it's when you look at something and go, whoa, I got a curve that looks like that. Oh, let's make it a straight line. We like straight lines. You like straight lines. Okay, questions about the logarithmic transformation. Okay, square root transformation. This is used with counted data. So how many are in this group and how many are in this group? Or how many visits to a bird feeder and how many visits to this bird feeder were there? Right? So how many visits were there to this one? How many visits to this one? And how many visits to this one? I'm doing stuff like that right now. Well, actually, these are Jen put my pay. So far, we've discovered birds don't like it at minus 30. That's our big, I think I've told you guys this, our big discovery so far is birds hate really cold. They just sit there and go, it's so cold. And they don't go foraging. They move very quickly. We'll probably end up using this transformation. It's counted data, just number of times they show up at different bird feeders. Okay? What happens with counted data, and it's, I'm like, I don't want to go through the arithmetic behind this, math behind this, but means end up proportional to their variances. So the bigger the mean, the bigger the variance. And you can actually, if you graph it out, you get a straight line between means and variances. You actually want similar variances, right? So what square roots do is they actually fix this. 
take the square root of the original number, or add a constant first again. Let's say you've got negative numbers, right? Or you want always have numbers bigger than one, probably, because right? maybe you have something really small, less than zero, maybe it's a huge number. So let's add, so again, let's say your lowest number is minus five, add six to all of them. So you take the square root of, of x plus k, and k in that case would be six, and that fixes it with kind of data right away. It's, like, it's amazing what happens. What if you just hope it's the reciprocal of the number? So if the value is 4, now it's a quarter. If it's a fifth, now it's 5. This actually makes the range smaller, so it makes all the variances smaller. This is especially true, let's say you've, already, you've got values that are all one or greater. If you're taking the reciprocal of all of those, now they're all between zero and one. This is done a lot with latencies. Because think about it, latency just like time to respond or time to finish a, ta a task. That's just speed. Speed is really just the reciprocal of latency, and then you got some constant or some so meters per second or something. So it's, this is what you use this a lot with latencies. In fact, it's almost done all the time with latencies. It's easier for people to understand back than it is to understand. Uh, like, this isn't what you have to explain. Let's put it that way. You're turning, just turning time into speed. And when I was in grad school, and we got a lecture like this, we were actually given real data of latencies of rats to run down a maze. Uh, and there was nothing there. Except we all you could see there was something there. And if you took the reciprocal, it just worked beautifully. And they're real data, which is great. Now it gets a little bit weird because you have to take the arc sign of something. And this is something you've probably been in trigonometry a long time. So with proportions or percentages, weird things happen. And you can understand why weird things happen because it's more common to get proportions that are, you know, in the middle between, let's say, 0 0.35 and 0 0.65, then they basically get 1.0 or 0, 0.0, right? In a group, because it's just because of variance. So you're going to get a lot, you get this fat thing in the middle, and then thin on the sides. And the two extremes of fat in the middle. So if you've got variance that look like that, it's almost always because you have proportions or percentages. What this does is it stretches both tails out, and if you stretch it all out, maybe that fat part gets thinner, basically. Think of it that way. And it's actually not quite the arc sign. <laughs> you take the square root of the value, and then you take the arc sign of the square root, and you multiply that times 2. And why? It's because I said so. Okay. I mean, I, I, I don't. Look, the trigonometry behind this isn't going to help anybody. But when people say they do an arc sign transformation, that's what they do. And this, I have a real case of this happening. My, my older student in 2007, Shauna, was doing really cool work. She collected all these data. We looked at it, and she got very angry, uh, and she swore a lot because this is why we got along, by the way. Her, her, literally, her honors thesis was about swearing. 
it was so funny that she got up to say, in her honors thesis talk, so this group heard someone say, fuck off, it was, it was the greatest thing. Because it's science, so she had to say, fuck for science. Right? Um, and it, we, I looked, we looked at it, so that worked. And then she went and did it, and it didn't work, and I said, did their proportions, Sean? What do you do with proportions? She said, I don't know. I said, you're my TA for 3256. You're supposed to do this. I said, two times r sine square root. I'm going to have to do that. And I asked her, why was writing your letters of recommendation for graduate school? Sean <laughs> is a PhD. I asked her why she was my TA, why she was my student. I questioned her existence generally. But then we quickly did it, and it worked. It fixed everything. Suddenly, it wasn't f is 1.3. It was like 7.9. Look, work, done. And then I told her she should have paid more attention in school. And she said, I got a 90. I didn't have to pay that much attention. And I told her, you know, using, throwing her words back at her, shut up, I fucking hate it. So, if you ever see on Facebook, you see her commenting on things. It always starts with her saying that. People who don't know us are like, what's going on with that person? No, that's, that's a term of endearment we use for each other. So this works, and it's beautiful. I literally suggested this about a paper uh, three weeks ago that I was reviewing for her. I said, you know why this probably didn't work? Do this. So I, the person might take my advice, I'm not sure. Question, when do you transform? Not always. <laughs> it makes everything more confusing. It makes everything more confusing because if I show, and when I show you a graph of proportions of percentages, you get percentages. 100% is correct because everybody's right. 50% is two alternatives, that's a chance. I don't know what two times the arc side square root of 50 is, or 0.5. I just don't know. So I don't ever, you never present graphs of transform data. Sometimes you might use a logarithmic scale, that's about it. You typically don't do that. You present the original data and you transform, and you tell the reader you transform it, obviously text. If the variances are messy, you can use the rules of thumb that I've got here and pick a transformation. Okay? If your data do not violate assumptions, you don't, you don't, it's not like, oh man, the variances are all the same, but if I, if I do enough mathematical things, maybe I'll find something. No, that's not how it works. This isn't a method of torture. This isn't like, you know, what I'm going to do is torture data until it tells me what I want it to tell me. Like it's not waterboarding. It. You're, you're, what you're trying to do here is you're trying to see, do I want to use different units? That's what you're trying to do. So questions on that? So that's part one of today's exciting lecture. So post-hoc comparisons. Last time, last day, not last time we was talking about transformations, last time when we talked about analysis of variance, I said that remember that the null hypothesis is that two groups are different from each other. At least two of the groups. It doesn't say which two. Right? So you've got a significant F. Let's say you've got a very simple experiment of three groups. What do you do now? Now, look, 
There is a philosophical position out there that says your hypothesis with two groups are different. Design your experiment such that I can look at the pattern of data and say two groups, these two groups are different. I know which two it is or which one's the different one and I'm happy. And I am very sympathetic to that because my stats prof in grad school said that and I kind of figured everything he says is being true. That said, it doesn't get you very far when most of the world doesn't think that way. <laughs> so our HO is mu equals, uh, mu one equals mu two equals mu three equals dot 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 mu sub k. But which two means differ? So if you got three groups or five groups or eight groups, I don't know, the question then is which groups differ? Well, this is a way to do it. There's a, there are, I'm going to show you or tell you about a series of different ways of finding out if you have different groups, like which groups are different from each other. The simplest method is called doing a t-test using what's called the Bonferroni correction. You read that Bonferroni? It's delicious. Joke. Funny, obviously, but it's the closest thing. <laughs> Statistics isn't funny. It's is serious. I'll stop laughing. I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. I'm waiting for this snowstorm to come. Not yet. Okay. Because it's been upgraded to a warning yet. We're all going to die, I think. So, oh boy, it looks like that doesn't look good. It's coming. T-test, the alpha would go up, so what the Bonferroni correction does is it takes care of this by dividing, so it's 1 over n times alpha, where n is the number of comparisons you want to do. So let's say you want to do three comparisons. So you have three groups, and you want to do 1 versus 3, 2 versus 1, and 2 versus 3. What it does is it corrects the, the alpha level. It's really just a, a quick way of correcting the alpha level. You might say, wait a second, then why wouldn't you just do three t-tests instead of the ANOVA? Good question. What if you got 17 groups and you really compare about one, you care about does, it, does the experimental group differ from one of the control groups? That's all you care about. So you do one comparison. Well, then you just do one t-test. Maybe you want to do four. Yeah, maybe, I don't know how many comparisons you have with 17, but it's, it's a big number. Maybe you just do four of the comparisons, okay? So that's why it just does that. It just goes 1 over n times alpha. So it's just a t-test. It's called t prime. t prime equals x bar 1 minus x bar 2 over the square root of 2 times the mean squared error divided by n. Mean squared error? Well, mean squared error is the standard deviation is the variance, right? So the square root of that, it's a t-test. It's a straight, straight up t-test. It's a two-sample t-test. And then you look up to see if that t prime value exceeds the critical value. You don't usually look it up. You know how you do it? You click when you, on STSS, and you go to one-way analysis and variance, and you can do a little click, and it says comparisons, and you choose the ones you want. Right? Here's another one. It looks very similar. It's called the studentized range, and it's called Q. It's the largest mean minus the smallest mean that you're, you're trying to compare. Okay? Divided by mean squared error over n. 
If that number exceeds a critical value, then you say the largest mean is bigger than the smallest. Okay. That's pretty easy. <laughs> it's not like this is complicated. And again, no one does these by hand. Literally nobody does these by hand because the computer's already done the radio for you. So why don't you just click the post-hoc comparisons? There'll be a compare. There's a comparisons thing in, in, in the uh, one-way uh, procedure in SPSS. How about the Newman Cools test? It's like everybody in like the 40s and 50s. I'm going to come up with my own. I'll name it after myself, and I'll change one little thing. So this one's a little bit different because just because of the way it looks. With this one here, you look up a Q value that has how big your range is, like how many comparisons you're doing. Are you doing one comparison, two comparisons, three, whatever. And how uh, the degrees of freedom for that, which is just going to be the number of uh, subjects per group minus one. And then 0.05 is the other thing. And then you take the multiple that times the square root of the mean square over n, and it gives you a value. And you look up the value, and you see if it's and it, sorry, I'm thinking about this one. This one, yeah, that's right. And it gives you this number w sub r. Let's say it gives you six when you do this calculation. So you look all this stuff up. You look up this q value. You've got mean square error. You've got n. You now look this up, and you then get this w value. Well, let's pretend it comes out at six. And that says any comparison where the means differ by six or more, they're different. Does that make sense? So like, if you've got 11 and 10 and three for your three means, that means 11 and 10 aren't different, but 11's different from three and 10's different from three. Because it came out at six. Just gives you a, it spits out a value. And again, you wouldn't do this by hand. For some reason, we were made to do this by hand in the second year when I was in undergrad. And I don't know why. But it didn't teach me anything. So any set of comparisons within the range R, in other words, how many comparisons you're doing. There's another one like this called Tukey's HSD. You know what HSD stands for? Honestly, significantly different. Tookie was kind of like being a little passive-aggressive with the name of this test. No, my, my test actually finds significance, which I think is pretty lame. Funny. Tookie just uses the biggest possible ratio. Okay, and that's just a couple of them. That's like three or four, whatever the hell I did. There's a zillion of them. There's one called LSD, which I think was done just on purpose, like I think you would I'm going to call mine, instead of HSD, LSD. Now look at that standard. And it's least significant difference. You know, so I'm sure someone's going to come up with the THC test just because. <laughs> totally, uh, honestly, completely different. Yeah. But we should develop that. Crowdsource that. So, which comparison do you use? Uh, now, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. This is what most people do, which you shouldn't do. And they just, well, let's do all of them and see which one fits my hypothesis. Oh, I hate that. 
But that's what people do. And you know, like, I, I, that really bothers me because it's, it's dishonest. It's like it's like when you're a kid and you're you're playing a game and you say, okay, it's best two out of three. Okay, best three to five. Okay, best four to seven. You keep going until you win. That's kind of what that is. It really bothers me. But that's what a lot of people do. I'd stick to one in a paper. <laughs> I know that again after a few articles for journals, and I see that the, 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 the postdoc test used changes experiment to experiment. And the comment I usually make is, is this because it didn't work with the other postdoc cast. Could you please be consistent? Or it looks like, I wouldn't usually say that because that's really shitty. I'll say it looks like you might be doing this rather than saying you are a dishonest journalist. You don't do that. Even when you don't sign things. Reviews are blind. Well, all mine are. <laughs> um, you know, people, in some journals now, they, you actually sign your name. You have to. I use HSD because it's right in the middle. It's right between being conservative enough that it doesn't find things that aren't there and being sort of open enough that it's not power that it finds stuff. So typically I just use HSD. I like that one. It's easy to do. And everybody knows it. There's so many of these that the, that the problem you can run into is you write it in a paper and then you submit it to a journal or your thesis or whatever, and someone looks at it and goes, I don't know what that statistical test is. And then you have to explain it to them. Right? It's hard enough explaining to people what your methods are and what your results mean and all those things. But when you also have to explain, okay, here's how statistics works to people, it's not good. Right? Now, there are times you have to do that. For some stuff I've done, I actually have a reference. a weird statistic that I use sometimes, a lot of linear stat that is completely appropriate, but no one knows. So I always have to say, please see Sokol and Rolf's biometry, uh, the chapter 16, for an explanation of how this statistic is distributed. It's usually fine. But you don't want to be doing that when you're talking just about your postdocs. So, I'd stick to one. Tukey is Tukey's HSD is probably the most common. Uh, Newman Cole's SNK, uh, that's the student best range. People use that. Bon for all using this very much anymore. This is not a huge deal, and that's why it's a very short topic. But it's something that once you do your thesis, for example, which is I think most of you guys are planning on doing that, you'll be asked to do postdocs. And even if you work with me and I say, you know, it's not that important, what's the pattern in your data? Other people are going to say, why don't you do postdocs? So I'll say, yeah, I'm just going to do them. Questions? What I want you to know from this is that these things exist and you can do them. I'm never going to ask you about the formulas. Because I don't know them either. I'm like a t-test where I just know the formula. All right?
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.